Hello and welcome to another episode of Geopolitics Decanted. I'm Patrick Gray. Dmitry Oparovich, the chairman of the Silverado Policy Accelerator and the regular host of this podcast, has just arrived back from a trip to Ukraine where he met with defense and intelligence leaders. He joins me now. Hello, Dmitry. Hey, Patrick. Thanks for sitting in as host again. No problem at all. And uh, yeah, in this podcast, we'll be hearing an interview that you did with military analysts Michael Kaufman and Rob Lee. Uh, You did that interview on the train on your way to Kiev. But first up, I guess it would make sense for you to explain to the listeners how you wound up taking this trip in the first place. And then maybe we can hear a little bit about what you learned while you were there. Yeah, so as some of my listeners may know, Mike Kaufman has gone on a couple of trips to Ukraine in the past, and he and I have been talking for a few months about arranging a trip jointly together to really get a perspective on how this counteroffensive was going. So we delayed it specifically until the counteroffensive had begun. And now that it's been a month in, it was a perfect time for us to go there to talk to senior leaders from really across the Ukrainian government. We talked to Ministry of Defense, we talked to general staff, we talked to the intelligence agencies, and uh, we talked even to to members of parliament. So a huge cross-section of leaders, as well as regular grunts that are fighting this war, and regular citizens to get a pretty good perspective, and I think very candid perspective on how things are truly going. And things, you know, and this isn't saying anything controversial. Uh, president Zelensky, Ukraine's President Zelensky, has has said as much. But the offensive is not going to plan at this stage. It is definitely slower than they had hoped it would be. Yeah, and they've admitted that to us. It's really, really tough. They certainly had hopes that the Russians would not be as deeply as entrenched as they are. Surovikin, uh, we were briefed, had developed this defensive plan that includes not just really, really extensive minefields, anti-tank mines, anti-personal mines, pre-ranged artillery, anti-tank traps, and uh, extensive fortifications, but also an entire command structure specifically designed to defend this huge swath of of the front line, and it's highly effective. The Ukrainians are having to dismount now to leave their Western-provided vehicles, the Bradleys, the Leopard tanks, and what have you, and get into the minefields under fire from Russian UAVs, artillery, helicopters, on foot, and try to demine and and make progress. Really, really tough going. They're taking enormous casualties. One of the things that happened on our way out of Kiev is we arrived at the train station to board the train, and then suddenly we started to see Dozens upon dozens, probably over 50 or 60 ambulances just start arriving and parking themselves next to the train station. And they were waiting for the daily arrival of casualties from the front line. And in fact, the people told me that this today was actually a good day because the relative number of the ambulances was small. And, and trust me, uh, it was just a never-ending line of ambulances that we were seeing. So it really brings this reality home when, when you see... The casualties, when, when you see a lot of people maimed walking around Kiev, this has been a terrible war for Ukraine. Obviously, a lot of infrastructure destroyed, a lot of people dead. But the psychological effect on, on everyone, really, from, from the leaders to, to the regular people, is devastating. Yeah, yeah. And I know that for you, this was, you know, this was big, seeing that. I mean, it really reminds you that I think a lot of people, particularly on social media who are following this conflict, they treat it a little bit like it's some sort of sports contest. And it's worth remembering that these are real people, mostly young men, uh, who don't have a great deal of choice in the matter on both sides being sent into this conflict. And it is not a sports game. Definitely not. War as hell. I'll give you one more anecdote, Patrick. We had a driver that brought us back to the train station. Very young guy. He has a newborn which is why he's back from the front now at home. And, and as we were leaving, he told me, God, I hope that this thing is over before my son grows up. And, yeah. you know, his son is a newborn right now. So he's talking about, you know, potentially 18 years later, he hopes this thing is going to be over. People are tired. People are exhausted. And obviously, they want to continue fighting. I don't want anyone to get an impression that they are giving up. That's definitely not the case. But the toll of this war on Ukraine and on Ukrainian people is enormous. Yeah. And look, we should point out too that, 
you know, what we're discussing right now are your impressions from visiting Ukraine. We don't really know what the situation on the Russian side looks like either, and I imagine it would be much the same, uh, which is high casualties, a lot of people being, you know, maimed and killed and just, you know, generally awful. So we wouldn't want people to get the impression that this is, you know, this is something that is only happening in Ukraine. No, that's exactly right. I think there's a desperation that really transcends the borders here. And in Russia, they feel helpless and hopeless that they have no say in the matter in the in this awful war that Putin had launched. And on the Ukrainian side, they feel like they have no choice but to continue fighting these invaders. Yeah. Now, look, uh, all of this has fed into a policy environment in Kiev where leaders there are not just thinking about this offensive. Uh, they are thinking about the long game. They're thinking about how to uh, secure their country uh, against, you know, future Russian offensives. They're trying to think long term. Like, how is that shaping up? What What is the thinking right now in Ukraine and in those policy and military circles on how they might best secure uh, their country in the long term? You know, that's such a great question because so often you hear the debate in Western capitals, in Washington, D.C., in European capitals, that is often framed in the context of land. How much land is Ukraine going to take back? Are they going to take Crimea and the areas that Russia took since 2014? And the debate in Ukraine is actually very different. The fundamental issue that they are focused on, at least from what they've told us, is how do we end this war in a way where we have durable security? Whatever we manage to take back, obviously that's important and it's important first and foremost for the people that live in in those occupied areas that they want to liberate. But beyond that, what matters is how do we make sure that we're not attacked three years from now, five years from now, ten years from now, because they certainly appreciate that the Russian imperialist desires on Ukraine transcend Putin, that plenty of people across the Russian elites don't think that Ukraine is an independent state and are likely to continue this policy as long as they can, and particularly if Russia is allowed to rebuild in the future. So that's why when we were there, it was actually during the NATO summit in Vilnius, and the focus was so much on can Ukraine get some guarantees of NATO membership, which they ultimately did not get concrete guarantees, of course, at least with with a date certain. And that was really a very powerful depressing signal for them because they certainly thought that NATO was their only long-term solution in terms of protecting themselves from future Russian invasions. And unfortunately, I think they're starting to realize that the only country and the only people that are able to protect Ukraine from future invasions are Ukraine and Ukrainian people. Yeah. It it was an emotional trip, I'll tell you this. And uh, again, I, I don't want people to think that the Ukrainians are giving up, nothing of the sort, but it's, it's not an understatement to say that a lot of people are quite depressed about the future. Yeah. So, I mean, you, what you've just described there, you know, would probably fall into the bucket of possible diplomatic solutions to the long-term security of Ukraine. There may be some military options there as well in terms of perhaps doing to their side of the lines, what Russia has done to theirs? I mean, is that something that is under active discussion? Yeah, I mean, I personally think that at some point then you start thinking about deterrence, and particularly regardless of where the war ends in terms of where the front line is, you need to start thinking about how do you deter Russian strikes, ongoing strikes on Ukrainian territory. When we were in Kiev, there were constant air sirens every day, they were sounding across the capital. You can't really have foreigners come in and invest money in a country that is under constant strikes. And for that to end, assuming that you don't have a negotiated end, because I don't think that one is likely with Putin, at least, you need some sort of deterrent where you may think about situations where for every strike on Kiev, there's a strike on Moscow, right? For that, of course, they need long-range capabilities. They're unlikely to get them from the West. That's been a red line, certainly for the Biden administration, in terms of providing long-range missiles to Ukraine that can strike Russian territory. But the Ukrainians are highly capable. They have their own indigenous missile production. They have the Neptune missile that was used to sink the Moskva cruiser, of course, in the early days of the war. They have the Grom missiles that they've developed indigenously. 
you can you can certainly think of ways in which they could extend the production of those missiles, extend their range, increase the, number, the numbers, so that they have their own deterrent capabilities to strike Russia in response to strikes on them. I mean, if North Korea has figured it out, I, I can assure you that Ukraine can as well. Hmm. And I think that needs to be part of the considerations for the future. I mean, there is also the option, I would imagine, to just invest extremely heavily in air defense. Air defense as well, although that's highly complicated. And of course, advanced air defense systems that the West has or even Russia has, which are really, really good, require numerous funds and and a lot of R&D that uh, will take a long time to provide. So I think at least for the near future, Ukraine is likely to have a significant reliance on Western air defenses. I should clarify too, earlier when I said that Ukraine may consider doing to its lines what Russia has done to its side, I meant building fortifications and minefields and and whatnot just to sort of calcify the lines. Yeah, you know, this is really interesting. We're seeing, of course, what really, really good defensive fortifications look like, thanks to General Surovikin, who was responsible for implementing this defensive line that is causing so much problems for the Ukrainians. And you might think of an alternative reality in which those types of fortifications had been built across the Ukrainian border with Russia, and that could have prevented the Russians from taking so much territory in the early days of the war. And in fact, some of those fortifications do exist in the Donbass region. For example, the small village of Avdiivka that has been part of the Russian assaults really since 2014. It's right next to Donetsk city that, that the Russians, of course, took early on in the conflict in 2014. And the Russians have been trying to take that, that little village literally for many years now, completely unsuccessfully because of the amount of mines and extensive fortifications that the Ukrainians had built up. So you can imagine a scenario where Ukraine is not just heavily armed and not only has long-range deterrent, conventional deterrent, but also has significant fortifications and mines built across its border with Russia or whatever the line of control might be to prevent future Russian assaults. Yeah. Yeah. Now, look, let's talk about equipment. Uh, what is the latest with the, uh, the F-16s that are apparently uh, destined for Ukraine? Well, first of all, I'll tell you a quick anecdote. We we're meeting with someone very senior in MOD and we asked them, what are your needs? And this person said, we, I have just five needs. And they're shells, 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 shells and shells. So this has been a war, as we've talked many times on this podcast, of artillery. And artillery remains a critical need for Ukraine, 155 millimeter shells, as well as other calibers, but 155 millimeter in particular. And that is the reason, by the way, why we're providing cluster munitions to Ukraine today is because we're running out of artillery shells to send. So this is a stopgap measure in terms of these depicums that we can provide to them to compensate for lack of regular shells. But when it comes to F-16s, so certainly one of the things that this offensive is highlighting is that the lack of air superiority uh, is a major issue for the Ukrainians in, in this counteroffensive. And I can tell you that uh, we, with Rob and Mike, we, we sort of brainstormed on the, on the train ride to Kiev how the U.S. military would do if it was facing the same constraints as the Ukrainians are facing. No air power, you know, limited numbers of armored vehicles, very few mine-clearing equip- equipment. And the answer is probably somewhat better, but not a whole lot better because there's no magic here. You have to get through the minefields. You're going to take a lot of casualties. And you're going to have to push through regardless. And of course, we would never fight this way. We would you know, carpet bomb the entire minefields and trench lines long before we would send a single soldier in. And the Ukrainians don't have that option. So they're acutely focused on air power and how they can replace their aging MiG fleet and uh, SU fleet with modern aircraft. And we talk about F-16s, and I'll tell you, Patrick, with Justin Bronk, of course, we've covered on a number of occasions the challenges with using F-16s, and we got it exactly right. The Ukrainians are well aware of those challenges. They're significant. They're going to have to upgrade their airfields to operate F-16s. They know that. It's, it's going to be expensive, and it's going to take time. They know about the challenges with AIM-120 missiles and acquiring those that have long enough range to outrange Russian jets. That will be a major issue for F-16s. And, you know, on this podcast, Justin has been a big fan of Swedish Gripens, and I can tell you that the Ukrainians are too. In fact, they told me that they've been eyeing them for over a decade, and in fact, they're quite hopeful that 
you know, they may be able to get at least some of them soon, even as, as they're pursuing the F-16. So they're perfectly happy with getting Gripens and F-16s over time. And, and they acknowledge that they, the Gripens present a really unique opportunity for them to showcase how those planes uh, are used in combat. Um, they highlight an interesting situation where several countries in recent years have canceled their Gripen contracts because Gripen does not have any combat experience, unlike the F-16s. And part of their pitch to Sweden is to say, look, we can show you combat experience. We can do the marketing for your Gripens. Just give them to us and we'll show you how they do against Russian Air Force. They'll be uh, great for future marketing of, of your aircraft. So the point here is that at least in the numbers that they're considering initially, Gripens do present an interesting alternative or at least in combination with F-16s can deliver a great deal of effects uh, for the Ukrainian Air Force. And I hope that Sweden, as well as Czechia, that has uh, a number of those jets as well, consider donating at least some of them to Ukraine soon. And I believe too that they're not actually asking for all that many aircraft, right? Like there might be this perception out there that they want hundreds of these things, but that's really not the case. No, I'm not gonna get into specific numbers. We don't want to reveal those details, but the numbers that they're asking for are eminently doable and would not substantially decrease the capabilities of Swedish Air Force, for example. Uh, so I think that they, they can certainly be provided, at least in the near term. Over time, of course, Ukraine is going to need more. Over time, they probably will need to be on F-16s, but at least in the short term, in order to help them with uh, fighting back the Russians, I think the Gripens are a great option. Now, look, staying on the topic of equipment, uh, the Ukrainians are, you know, they have some challenges around maintenance because they're operating such a, you know, such an amazing array of equipment uh, from different manufacturers and different models and things like that. And I believe they have been having some issues even tracking down the manuals for some of this equipment, which is a pretty serious issue for them and, and one that you would imagine is easily solved. This is a huge problem that we've heard about over and over again and, and a great deal of frustration for them because they don't even have regular maintenance passports for a lot of these vehicles, right? They're getting Bradleys. They have no idea how many miles are on them for howitzers, how many shells were fired through them. So they don't know how often they need to maintain them, replace barrels and what have you. They've gotten really, really good at doing maintenance for a lot of the Soviet equipment. They're, they're doing even things I don't want to get into the specifics, but things that would make your hair stand up in terms of the entrepreneurial and sometimes highly risky nature of their maintenance operations. But the challenge is enormous because they literally have the nose arc of weapon systems. Just on howitzers alone, 155 millimeter howitzers, they have eight different types that require, of course, different maintenance procedures, uh, different barrels, and so forth. And um, one of the things that they are very insistent on is that they want detailed manuals, maintenance manuals for those systems so that they can maintain them to a large extent themselves. Just on Leopard 1s, they'll probably be the largest operator of Leopard 1 tanks in the world when this thing is over. So they're making a very compelling case. Why, why do we need to ship them back to Poland or Germany for maintenance? Teach us how to maintain them. We'll figure it out. You know, we can resolve the IP issues. Just help us help ourselves. And I think that's a very compelling case. Um, and uh, I understand that these companies have their IP to protect, but I'm sure something can be worked out license-wise to resolve this, and this seems like a critical, critical need. Do we know that this information is being withheld on IP grounds, or is that just an educated guess? That's my sense. I mean, some of it would require licensing. Uh, I'm not sure it's been a priority uh, for yeah. countries. As well, I mean, that's, what it, that's why I asked. I wonder if perhaps it's just an oversight because they happen. Yeah, uh, could be. I'm not, I'm not aware. But um, that's something that I'm certainly going to be pursuing as I have discussions with officials here uh, back here in D.C. Now, look, uh, let's talk about Russia now uh, and the Russian side of this. Dimitri, last time you and I spoke, we were talking about uh, Prigozhin's march for justice to Moscow. And it has got a whole lot weirder since then. And it is very difficult to understand what on earth is happening, what the aftermath of this is. It is extremely confusing. Do you have any insight to share with us here or are you as confused as the rest of us? Well, one, we've heard some things from the Ukrainian side about how they view this, but uh, let me talk to you about my personal take first and then I'll share some, some tidbits that we've learned. Uh, one, uh, I think it's pretty clear is that Prigozhin 
is desperate to apologize to Putin to basically say that uh, this was no big deal. He just overreacted a little bit. He actually apparently said to one of his underlings who had asked him what this whole episode was about that he just kind of lost his <laughs> went a little mad. The uh, being on the he front lines. He woke up on the wrong side of bed. Uh, yes, is, exactly. Seems to be his line of defense. I don't know how that's going to go for him. Yeah, went a little crazy, overreacted, and this was not directed at Putin. Putin is not in a forgiving mood, and he still doesn't look like he's thinking fondly of Prigozhin, but at least for now, he's letting him stay in Russia. There's plenty of evidence that he's not only been to Moscow, but he's been all over St. Petersburg. The Ukrainians, by the way, don't think at all that Wagner is in Belarus. They think that maybe a few dozen people have gone into Belarus. Some of them have come out since then. They don't think that Prigozhin is based in Belarus, and, and there's evidence to indicate that would be the case. So I think the Belarus saying is just a sideshow and Wagner still exists. There is some evidence that they're now giving up some of their heavy arms in Ukraine. And the Ukrainians believe that they're being given an option to either stay in Ukraine and fight under the MOD leadership, i.e. sign contracts with the MOD, or leave and continue working for Wagner elsewhere in Africa and Syria and so forth. And the Ukrainians believe that not many people are signing the MOD contracts. So Wagner, at least for now, seems to be out of the Ukraine business. But the interesting thing... Well, they're certainly still in the Central African Republic uh, uh, business. And, you know, there's some all sorts of strange stuff going on uh, there as well. And you really do get the sense that Wagner's presence there is about keeping a stream of illicit funds flowing to Moscow and to the right people, right? Well, and that may be key because the other thing that the Ukrainians told me is that they don't think that MOD is paying salaries for Wagner anymore. Of course, MOD has been the big funder of Wagner and providing them not just weapons, but funding the personnel. And Putin admitted that they paid over a billion dollars over the last year to Wagner. So the Ukrainians believe that those payments have now stopped. So in the absence of that, you're going to need other ways to pay those people and resources that they're extracting from Africa could be a great substitute for it. The other thing that was interesting is that they don't believe that Surovikin is in jail. There's some reporting in U.S. media that he's been detained, and the Ukrainians agree that there's been an investigation of that of him. They actually believe that he's been investigated back in January for, ironically, attacks on Ukrainian infrastructure that he had launched in October. Remember, all those missile strikes and, and Iranian Shahed drone strikes began in October under Surovikin's command. And because he has expended so many missiles against Ukrainian targets, there was a case against him. The Ukrainians believe that uh, basically accused him of uh, depleting Russian stockpiles. But that eventually got closed out. He was sidelined. Gerasimov was promoted to take overall command of the Ukrainian forces. And they believe that Surovikin was detained once again after the Prigozhin mutiny. But they believe he is now out free. I mean, one thing this episode has done, and you tell me because you're the expert, but it does seem like the episode at the very least has revealed some cracks, right, in, in the, the way power is distributed within that country. I mean, it, maybe not revealed cracks, but certainly revealed some tensions. Do you think that that's a fair statement? I mean, I'm not going to say, oh, you know, and, and it, there's a lot of wishful thinking out there on social media and whatnot that a, that a coup in Russia is imminent. I certainly wouldn't uh, say, suggest that. But I think, if anything, this, this whole episode has revealed that Putin's grip is not absolute. Let's just put it that way. No. And in fact, the Ukrainians believe that there were some Russian pilots that ignored orders to strike the Wagner column as it was on its way to Moscow, that many in the Russian military and Rosguardia did not want to shoot at Wagner. And that's clearly a problem for Putin, that he is at least someone somewhat lost control of his military, at least well, in that perhaps, particular Well, and I'm, I'm just making this suggestion here, perhaps the issue isn't just with the rank and file. There are certainly a bunch of different silos of power with competing views on how things should be, let's put it that way. That's right. But, but you're right to caution, Patrick, because the one thing that Putin has going for him is there is no other alternative. And the elites mm -hmm. don't have an alternative. Prigozhin is certainly no alternative. So as long as that remains, I think that he is quite safe in power, even though he's in a much weaker state. I do agree with that. Yeah, yeah. Now, I also understand you've learned a little bit, at least about the, the Ukrainian view of uh, which 
organizations within Russia were behind the war, which ones weren't. There are some interesting theories among Ukrainian officials on who was on board for the invasion of Ukraine and who wasn't. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, this was really fascinating. They, they, they claim to have had insights about how the lead up to the war was taking place and which Russian security forces were for or against it. So, for example, they believe that the GRU was dead against it, that the general staff leadership, i.e. Gerasimov, was for it because Putin obviously was for it, but the operational leaders in the general staff definitely did not think that this was a good idea. We know that the SVR was not fond of this invasion. In fact, the dressing down of head of SVR Narishkin at the Security Council meeting that was televised four days before the war was quite insightful. But the one thing that they said that was really fascinating is that they claimed that the FSB, right in the lead up to the war, was quite lukewarm on this. They weren't coming out against a four, but they were sort of saying, well, you could do this, but maybe it's not a greatest idea. And at one point, they say that in their briefings to Putin, Putin unloaded on them and said, what do you mean it's not a great idea? What do you mean that there might be challenges? I, I spent hundreds of millions of dollars on developing, uh, on giving, giving you hundreds of millions of dollars on developing assets inside Ukraine to help take over the government. Where did this money go? And then in the next meeting, lo and behold, the FSB suddenly comes out strongly for the war saying that all is good. Their asset network is ready and they're looking forward to a great invasion. Well, perhaps that meeting is more survivable when you say good plan, sir, instead of sorry, we embezzled that money. That's right. The other thing that we've learned that was really interesting is the effects that on the Ukrainian economy are really significant. Obviously, we know about the destruction that's been taking place with Russian bombing campaigns, missile campaigns against Ukrainian critical infrastructure. But the Kachovka Dam incident, one of the things we've learned is that it's had a significant impact on the Ukrainian metallurgy industry in the Krivi region. And that's quite significant. I'm not sure that's well known that those plans were heavily affected because of the dam destruction. And uh, we also heard some theories about the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant that's been in the news, of course, since the beginning of this war. The Russians are occupying it. There's been fears that they might detonate it. There's definitely some evidence that it's been quite heavily mined by the Russians. And what the Ukrainians believe is that they do want to cause at some point some sort of explosion potentially in the cooling pool where nuclear fuel rods are stored in order not to necessarily spread radiation. An explosion like that is unlikely to spread radiation beyond just the immediate area of the plant, but in order to sort of use it as a nuclear blackmail to threaten Europe, to threaten the West with spikes in radiation, at least in the area, and to show them that Russia may indeed be crazy enough to pollute a larger area of Europe. And, you know, I don't know how, how real that is or how true, but uh, it's certainly an interesting theory and could be quite plausible. And on the Russian side of this, you know, the Russian economy is also facing a bunch of challenges due to sanctions. But, uh, you know, with inflation rolling over in the United States, that sent oil prices higher. And that picture is um, all quite uncertain. But another thing that we've discovered, or well, that you've learned from your trip, is that Russia's mobilization, uh, you know, most people out there think that that was a point in time thing. What you've learned is that that mobilization is actually ongoing uh, and that Russia is still pulling people into its into its ranks to, to fight in Ukraine. I mean, you know, obviously there's a military effect there, but there's also an economic f effect on that. I mean, this is costing everyone a lot. That's right. So the Ukrainians believe that about 20,000 new recruits are being pulled every single month. So that's providing replacement troops after training to be used in Ukraine. So that was very significant. And the Ukrainians believe that that may give them at least some options to delay the more general mobilization wave that everyone sort of believes needs to come if, if Russia is going to continue to go on the offensive in the future. But the other thing we've learned is that their production capacity is increasing, both of artillery shells, of missiles. They're believed to be producing at least a million artillery shells a year and targeting significantly more, uh, targeting over two million, but the Ukrainians don't believe they'll get there. So this is uh, this is a an economy that's been mobilized for war and is still able to sustain a great rate of production, at least on munitions, if not on weapon systems themselves. 
Okay, Dimitri, that's it for you and me today, but we're going to play an interview now that you recorded on the train on your way to Kiev from Poland. Now, this is with Mike Kaufman and Rob Lee, right? That's right. So we were all going up to Kiev and we were talking about the latest update on the counteroffensive. So I hope everyone enjoys the listen. All right, we're here on the train to Kiev with Mike Kaufman and Rob Lee. So, Rob, let me start with you. We're obviously going to learn a lot this week talking to folks running this counteroffensive, but what is your perspective on how things are going now? Where do we stand a month in, into this offensive? Sure. So I think, um, as Ukraine officials have noted, I think they're <clears throat> not where they want to be. Um, it's still early. Um, you know, we, we know that Ukraine has not committed most of its reserves so far. That means that there's a lot of the fighting is yet to be done. <clears throat> um, I suspect this offensive is going to go on for at least another month or more. Um, so, you know, it's, it's still early. Um, and Ukraine's obviously made progress. They're making more progress south of Bakhmut recently. They continue to advance um, slowly in the south um, uh, towards Tukmak. And, um, you know, ultimately, what's difficult to assess is that you know, we often look for most kind of observable signs to talk about how an offensive's going. And the most kind of observable thing you can, you can look for is territorial gains. Well, Ukraine has not made as much territorial gains as they would have wanted, but we can't, the thing that is, is quite significant, we can't really measure very well, is attrition. And there's clearly a lot of attrition going on. It's not very clear how the relative attrition is playing out. It's not fully clear um, at what, what effect that will have. And you know, if you, Ukraine, mean, you mean it's not clear how much they're causing pain to the Russians and how much they're taking? Right, so both, both sides are taking attrition right now. That's, that's obvious, but the videos don't really give us a good indication of how much relative attrition there is and necessarily which side can sustain it better. And so on the Russian side, if they take enough losses, if Ukraine can isolate parts of the front, they may be able to achieve a breakthrough. And so even though it's been slow so far, they could have you know more significant gains in the future. And on the flip side, if Ukraine keeps taking losses and more attrition, the offensive might culminate too soon before they make it, make it to the main defensive line in the south. It's another 10 or 15 kilometers in some parts. So it's kind of too, it's too soon to say, essentially. Um, I'm kind of neither optimistic or pessimistic, right? We, you know, there's a lot of things we can't kind of can't see. And so I think it's, it's useful to say, you know, Ukraine clearly would have liked to have uh, progressed farther than they have so far, but, um, they still may, might make um, serious gains here, and it's, we can't really determine a lot of the kind of factors that are going to go into that. And can we figure out at this point where the main line of effort is? And there's a lot of commentators out there in the Twitter sphere and whatnot saying that these are still probing attacks. This is not the main offensive. You don't agree with that, right? No, and, and I think you know the, the first week um, of, of the of the counteroffensive on, on June 4th. So, you know. It was, it was noticeable to look for a certain brigades in Ukraine to see which ones they committed and what kind of assets they committed. And one of the ones we were all looking for was the 47th Mechanized Brigade. It was one of the priority brigades. It, it received Bradley's. I think it probably received uh, Leopard 2 tanks. Um, and we saw early on from some of the photos is that we saw a lot of Bradley's um, Leopard 2 tanks as well as Leopard 2R uh, mine corner vehicles that were either damaged or abandoned um, on the Orikhov uh, axis towards going towards Tokmak. Um, that clearly is a sign that this is an important um, a direction of attack. It's probably the main effort for Ukraine. Um, and so, again, it was, it was an important brigade because they had this, these really important kind of capabilities, weapon systems employed. That tells you something about how important it was. And because it wasn't just one attempt, right, they made multiple attempts to progress, it, it doesn't really indicate it's probing. It, it indicates it was, it was more of a kind of serious t- uh, attempt. Um, but again, it's important to qualify it by saying, Ukraine still has not committed a number of the brigades, including, you say, the 82nd um, Brigade, which I think has, has striker vehicles, so also priority brigade. And so, you know, just because they've, they've had um, some difficulties so far, it doesn't really tell us necessarily how the rest of the offensive will go. One thing I think it's important to keep in mind, though, is that, you know, if, if people thought Russian forces would simply collapse, right, that has not happened. I think we can, you know, honestly say that Russian forces are defending in a pretty competent manner. They're defending in a relatively doctrinal manner. So we're seeing kind of traditional maneuver defense being employed where Russian forces, at least in the south, um, they are you know, trading space for time. They're, they're trying to attrit Ukrainian forces. They're trying to not get decisively engaged or, or encircled um, because they still have that main defensive line to fall back to. And they're doing some counterattacks too, right? That's, that's right. They're still doing counterattacks. And they're, they're, I think they're um, in a pretty competent way that they're, you know, you, Russia has some really significant force quality problems. So you have a, a big force, a lot of it is mobilized, a lot of the quality is not great, um, but they also have some more elite units. And they're using those uh, in a relatively effective way where even though 
you know, much of the front line is held by these kind of Storm Z convict units or these mobilized units. They also have all, almost all the naval infantry brigades down in the south. They're also using Spetsnaz units, Spetsnaz, the 45th Spetsnaz Brigade and 22nd are both playing a role too. And that's a way of kind of mitigating the weaknesses of a lot of these Russian forces. Um, and, and they've been, so, thus far they've been, you know, quite effective. And so, again, you know, the, the question we were talking about before, we talk about attrition. Russia can sustain attrition in those convict units pretty easily because they can replace them. If the naval infantry units or if the special brigades take heavy casualties, right, that could be a problem for their, their ability to defend going forward. But it's really hard to, you know, from open sources, determine whether or not those units are taking attrition, how that will go, and so on. So that's why it's, you know, it, we had to kind of have a, uh, a bit of a hedging right now and say it without making too, too strong a prediction of exactly how things will go. All right, Mike, we know that it's contingent, <laughs> but what else, what, what other thoughts do you have on this offensive? I mean, I think the main question is, where does Ukraine go from here? What should we expect? And how do we assess it, right? And my view is that first, few plans survive first contact with the enemy. The enemy typically gets a big vote in, in the course of any major operation. Uh, I agree very much with what Rob said. That should come as no surprise, since we often talk, work uh, together on these subjects. I think that maybe much did not go to plan, but Ukraine still retains a lot of options. That said, Ukraine faces some dilemmas as well. It looks like Ukraine's effort was intended to present a problem to the Russian military, to attack on three different axes, to force them to commit reserves, to reveal vulnerabilities and opportunities for Ukrainian forces. And what are the three axes? The three axes are Bakhmut, uh, the Vyikonovasilka axis pushing south uh, in southern Donetsk, and the Tokamak axis pushing in two directions south from Orihe, right? But what about Vukhladar and Crimea? So there's a, a wide arc of pressure across the front and includes Vukhladar and Crimea, but those are not sort of main Ukrainian efforts, if that makes sense. If you look at the concentrations of forces and where the offensive is really taking place. Okay, I think the challenge Ukrainian military has had is that that approach has also spread their effort as well to some extent, and has made it difficult for them to mass forces. Secondarily, advancing on a broad front in places like Vidika Novosilka allowed them to gain, uh, let's say, gain uh, several kilometers of territory in a fairly broad strip. But it exacerbates challenges they have with a shortage of air defense to cover the force and a shortage of clearing or breaching equipment as well. We, we were looking last night at some pictures of three mine clearing vehicles, at least, we don't know if they're totally destroyed, but at least out of action because of probably mine and artillery. And, and that's a significant portion of their mine clearing vehicles that they've had from the West, right? Right. I mean, we don't know how much they got in, in the run-up to the war, Rob and I were saying that the thing that's going to determine this more is going to be the enablers and the supporting equipment, not, you know, what's going on with the Leopard and which version of the Leopard they got or how much better the Bradley is. Yes, it's important. So the Defensive has revealed the Western equipment is much more survivable and most importantly protects the troops much better than uh, Soviet generations of equipment. Okay, And yes, they give uh, nighttime capabilities for those types of operations. So these vehicles have these advantages. But at the end of the day, a minefield is a minefield. Facing ATGMs, uh, facing uh, Russian rotor aviation, which is a major problem whenever a formation is breaking through. These alligator helicopters are causing That's right. Damage. Well, they usually work, they, I mean, typically uh, Russian helicopter units work in uh, pairs with a search uh, rescue backup. So it's typically a K-52 alligator and an MI-28 with it and an MI-8 that comes up behind them in case one of them gets shot down. So they usually, it's a mix of three helicopters that are working as a team. And, and they're often operating at night and the Ukrainians are lacking thermal vision take them down. They know Ukrainians have uh, not just a short time of nighttime capability, but particularly a, a deficit of all-weather, nighttime capable, short-range air defense. We heard it when we were in Bakhmut um, uh, on the last visit to Ukraine, and it's very visible as a problem, and you see that the Russian airspace forces are aware of it and are taking advantage of it. So these all these challenges. A Ukrainian military is taking very visibly an attritional approach. This is what happened in Kherson too. If you remember, the initial Kherson offensive, the initial push, stalled out very quickly. Then we saw almost a month of attrition, then a secondary push that made some progress alongside the, the river bank, right, the, the right side of the river. And, uh, and then the lines kind of restabilized again, but it, made it, but it made it clear to the Russian military that at that stage they needed to withdraw. But this is not Kherson, right? 
the Russian military is not on the wrong side of a river. There's a much higher density of forces. There's a much more extensive line of defenses and entrenchments, right? They have reserves. And so it's a much more difficult uh, proposition than what was taking place in Kherson at the time last fall. Um, I think for, from the Ukrainian military's point of view, they can continue to try to degrade the Russian military, try to establish fire superiority, and then push again. But military strategy is fundamentally about choices, right? I often say strategy reveals itself in choices. If Ukrainian forces push in, with the reserves that they have available, let's say, typically we think of it as the 10th Corps that they have and maybe other units that they're generating, if they push in now and use them to break the main Russian lines, they will not have additional forces to exploit that breach. They will not be able to sustain momentum necessarily, so they may successfully break the Russian line but not advance uh, into Russian-occupied territory or the offensive will run out of momentum at some point. They can proceed with a nutritional approach, but that's very tasking in ammunition, right? Um, and and they were given some amount of ammunition for this offensive. That's why the DPICM decision is very significant because those are the cluster munitions that were just right. authorized. That's right. Not I, and I'll just be clear, not because of their effectiveness. You know, I'm not I'm not a person who believes in silver bullets or game changers, miracle weapon systems. Yeah, that the latest five acronym alphabet soup is going to solve the problem, right? We're just one we're just one capability away from fixing it. Uh, the main difference uh, that they're going to make is that the Ukraine offensive is going to end whenever they run out of artillery ammunition. That's the reality. That's going to culminate at that point. So that's going to create time pressure because we're over a month into it. And to eliminate that time pressure, the best thing the United States could do was come up with a trench of artillery ammunition. And the United States has the Pickums as a sizable stockpile that's available there. And it's not like you can find somebody else who's just sitting on, well, it's not easy to find somebody else who's sitting on half a million artillery shells, let's say, that can easily uh, contribute them. So, I think the Ukrainian military right now is probably... And, and by the way, they're a force multiplier because they're cluster munitions, so you need to use a lot less of them. That's true, but they come with major drawbacks, okay, because they, uh, the unexploded ordinance uh, creates significant challenges if you're going to then roll over that territory, right? If your troops are going to seize that territory, you're going to have to walk over. They're basically flying mines. Uh, well, you know, here's the truth. I, these are nasty weapons with lasting effects. Uh, if you believe the 2.5% official dud rate, make sure to keep those receipts, okay? Because uh, I am confident of a few things, but I highly doubt that that's, what's going to end up, that's what it's going to end up being. But... These weapons are also effective to some extent, and most importantly, it's a numbers game. Ukraine needs hundreds of thousands of artillery shells. We might have been in a better place if Europeans did not wait 13 months into the war to invest in their own artillery production. Not everybody. Well, oh, by the way, same for us. It's not like we were that fast. Well, we invested in our artillery production last summer. <laughs> okay. So, and we spent a lot of effort along with the Brits to scrounge the earth for artillery ammo from anywhere and everywhere they could get. I think it's it's known publicly that a lot of ammunition for this offensive was borrowed from South Korea in practice. Okay, but it doesn't look like, as best I can tell, it doesn't look like that that's an easy option to replicate. So, uh, I think where the Ukrainian offensive is right now is they've likely adjusted, weighed their options, and there's a good chance they'll try again, but we don't know on what axis. We don't know if they're going to try to use up the rest of the force and keep their reserves available to exploit, or if they're going to throw them into breach. We don't know if they're going to generate additional reserves based on how this is going, because the, the impact's probably significant on the Ukrainian force as well. Um, most, like, typically in offensive operations, you expect that you're going to end up using more artillery and ammunition than you plan, right? And I think that's what's happening with the Ukrainian military as well. That's why we're talking about deep pick No surprise, you always need more ammo than whatever it is you budgeted. Usually, it's, uh, this is pretty commonplace. Um, and last point, on the Russian side. So... I think the, the one thing that the, the Ukrainian plan can try to establish or try to hope for is that over time this pressure will lead to a significant weakening of Russian positions on one of these fronts. That will force them to shift reserves over and that will then uh, create an opportunity where if Ukrainian forces break through a line, the Russian military will not have a mobile reserve available there to counter them. I don't know if that's going to happen, but I think that's one of their, you know, their better shots at it. So, uh, this is kind of where we are, and the question is like, how, how do you assess the offensive at this point? The initial attacks, I think, didn't were not successful and didn't set up what the Ukrainian military wanted. But the offensive wasn't failed either. If we looked at the Kherson offensive a month in, we would have declared a, a failed offensive. Like as a like, just looking back, right? As a 
as a recent historical analogy. So folks have to be patient and understand that this is going to run the course of several months. I think it will be much easier to judge either after we see another major Ukrainian attempt to break Russian lines, or let's say I'll, I'll, I'll make an arbitrary line, or later in August it'll also be clear as well. Once Ukraine has expended the bulk of ammunition available and allowed their resources for this operation. So since you love miracle weapons so much, there's mm -hmm. been a lot of focus on storm shadows. What effect, if any, have they had so far on degrading Russian logistics? Well, I mean, they're an effective weapon. They're difficult to intercept. And uh, it gives Ukraine, to put it crudely, a much longer stick. They've, they've gone after command and control early on. They hit a couple ammunition storage sites. Although I noticed that on the internet, every uh, every uh, ammunition storage site or, or point that blows up is a large uh, ammunition depot by uh, definition. And people are able to assess this by seeing a fireball at night, and they just know for a fact that that's exactly what everything is. But um, And they've gone after uh, ground lines of communications, right? Which is actually surprisingly went after quite late, right? The Chungar Bridge, for example, coming out of Crimea. But it does look like they only hit it once. And Russian military also appears to be prepared to recover from that pretty quickly. So, And as we've seen with the bridges over Kherson, it's really, really hard to take down bridges, right? It takes a lot of explosive power. They don't have that many storm shadows to actually bring these bridges down in significant numbers. Yeah, and, and it's not it's not easy to have the effect you want. In Kherson, the Russian military was sustained and ultimately withdrawn based on one bridge and a ferry system that they had running. That's it. They were using the bridge over Kakovka Dam the whole time and a bunch of ferries. So you'll be surprised how many forces can be sustained with a fairly with a fairly narrow uh, pipeline when it comes to ground lines of communication. But I think, uh, in general, storm shadows <clears throat> have been effective, uh, but they also do demonstrate that um, that if Winterwaffen ATACMS was introduced, it wasn't going to resolve this war in a span of a month, month and a half, because it's a very similar capability with very similar payload used very much against the targets that ATACMS would have been used against, and it certainly had an impact. But we've seen well over a month, uh, I think month and a half of their employment so far, and we've not seen tremendous impact uh, on the Russian force. And part of the reason for that is the adaptations in the Russian military that were caused by the introduction of HIMARS last June. And I kept saying it's not just going to be about bringing a longer stick to the fight. Right? There are a lot of changes uh, to Russian military and, and how they do logistics. They're going to be vulnerable in some cases. It's not possible on a large front like that for a military to not have ammo stored anywhere, or to not have vulnerabilities in command and control, or to not have to use bridges, right? But you're not seeing nearly the amount of, of uh, uh, critical infrastructure strikes that, or, or strikes against the logistics command and control network that you saw when HIMARS was first introduced last summer. So it just shows that it's going to be more difficult. They're going yeah, to need volume more Volume probably plays a role into that. If you don't have that many, you're gonna be very selective about your targets. Uh, that's true. And, and we don't know what they're prioritizing as targets, but it looked initially like they were going after command and control, then logistics and ground lines of communications. It's just like a guess uh, based, on, based on what's been hit. And, but the other challenge is that you don't know if the limit is that they don't have enough missiles or that the targets they're looking for are much harder to find, right? And well, presumably they have the help <coughs> of uh, some friends of the U.S. intelligence community helping them. Yeah, well, targets. I mean, when I say finding targets, no one, no one, you know, no, no one can see us talking about this. But the, sort of the look on my face that indicates that Ukraine clearly isn't doing this by itself, right? It's it's rather it's, it's rather well well established who helps Ukraine with a lot of uh, uh, target identification and also battle damage assessment. Yeah, I think a lot of the war effort is is um, uh, is is overly you know it's overly portrayed as uh, just a Ukrainian-run operation, but we know we know it isn't. Yeah. So let, let's talk, guys, a little bit about Prigozhin and Wagner, our favorite topic. So now that we've had some weeks since this mutiny began, and we can start drawing at least some conclusions from it, Prigozhin appears to be still alive and well, walking around St. Petersburg, maybe even Moscow. Some of his empire is getting shut down, so notably his troll operations and quote-unquote media propaganda channels are getting shut down and, and the people getting laid off. But there's some indication that Wagner may be continuing to recruit, uh, which means that maybe they're still receiving funds. Rob, 
what, give us your situational awareness on what's happening right now with Wagner itself. Sure. Uh, the short answer is I don't know. Um, it's it's pretty unclear right now, and so I think you know we we may have to wait for another week or two to, before we really know what's going on. Um, you know, I, I, we've got a little more information about what went on um, during the mutiny or, or, or coup. It seems as though Prigozhin had more ambitious goals than what I initially suspected. Um, that you know disappeared that he wanted to you know potentially capture Shoigu and Gorasimov, or at least you know depose them as, as part of this. So it was more ambitious than what I initially thought. I would think it was the case. But but this was still not a coup against Putin in any way. Right, right. So so I I, I don't. Um, I don't think this is designed to try and replace Putin. I don't think Prigozhin had that that power. Um, but you know, the, once he once he started this, so once it became this public challenge to Putin, you know, it, it became a challenge to him. So it, it, it was an unprecedented kind of situation any time in, in near history or recent history. Um, even though I think the the attempt was mostly kind of focused at Grasov and Shoigu. Um, but again, it was it was a power play, and it was Prigozhin trying to change who is in charge of the, uh, the Russian military and you know it can only be seen as a, a challenge to Putin himself once you do that even if it wasn't uh, designed as, as, as such. So Mike we were talking last night how both Putin and Prigozhin probably lost here obviously Prigozhin has had his wings clip, clipped at a minimum even if he's still alive and well we'll see if that remains Putin has been majorly embarrassed perhaps weakened by this mutiny but the big winner to me seems like Shoigu this is the ultimate survivor. The guy's been in government since 1991 under numerous prime ministers, under Yeltsin, under Putin, and clearly not the most capable defense minister that you could have in Russia or elsewhere. But now it's going to be next to impossible to replace him, right? Yeah, Shoigu's a political animal. I think Prigozhin inadvertently ensured that Shoigu and Gerasimov end up staying in there because, competent or not, now Putin cannot replace him and fire them because it looks like he's giving in to Prigozhin's demand and Prigozhin actually gives something. So literally, the exact opposite of what he was trying to do is what he accomplished. Absolutely, and the exact opposite, I think, of what people behind him were trying to do, because I'm very skeptical that this uh, mutiny was just was just Prigozhin's idea, right? I think that there's a larger uh, palace game at work here. He had backers, he had cover in the Kremlin, and folks commonly see him as some sort of independent operator, which he really wasn't. Um, and it's not clear what's going to happen to those individuals and how this game is still going to unfold, because I think the Kremlin now is likely looking through who supported the mutiny, who knew about it, to what extent they supported it actively or passively. Why were Prigozhin's men allowed such easy access to the Rostov headquarters and allowed to uh, essentially travel relatively unmolested all the way to Voronezh and up from Voronezh on the M4 highway? And, you know, is that uh, sort of confusion and stupidity at work, or is that the military just letting them through? Why was there a lack of orders and what have you? So that's, that's I think, what's probably happening behind the scenes. And most people don't appreciate when, you know, you say Kremlin, most people tend to think Putin. But the reality is that there are numerous cliques inside yeah. the Kremlin, and there's a lot of infighting. They're all trying to get the czar's attention and power. And there are people that are supporting Prigozhin, but there are people that clearly hate him. Mm-hmm. Not just Shoigu and Gerasimov, most prominently, but the FSB is clearly going against him. They've been doing all these raids. They've been doing all this discrediting of him by putting out these interesting photos of him and Borat-style disguises and, and what have you. And we know from hacks into his system by Dacia Center that were published a few months ago that he was always very, very concerned about the FSB. He had given polygraphs to his employees who were joining his companies. Mm-hmm. And one of the questions was, are you, you in any way affiliated with the FSB? So FSB is clearly the enemy. GRU has obviously been, uh, Russian military intelligence has been the supporter of him. Who else do you think is supporting him? Yeah, well, on the FSB, that was quite logical because FSB was always opposed to legalization of PMCs in Russia, mainly because they they, they want to have a monopoly on violence, right? And they, they thought this was going to be a problem down the line, and they this was... And they were right. They were right. This was meant to be GRU's pet, right? GRU's the person that's largely been running coordinating Wagner activities abroad, and FSB uh, probably sent a long note saying, uh, with a blank shape paper, saying, I told you so to Putin after this mutiny. That's, I suspect that's all it said on it. That look, 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 I told you this was going to get out of hand, and here we are. Um, I think that ultimately there's a contest in the regime, which is my own guess looking at it, and I'll broadly characterize it, 
between the mobilization and the demobilization element of it, right? This regime was largely built as a demobilization regime, and there are many people in it that are arguing that, no, they, they, they don't need Wagner, they don't need ideological mobilization, they don't need to involve the society, they can handle this war, and that there are a lot of dangers to mobilizing the society to the system, right? It's, it's difficult to control, and who knows where it will lead them. That's likely the Shoigu position along with others. But the other people, and here I'll bring up individuals like Kovalchuk, who were influential, particularly influential, I think, in... This is one of the war. oligarchs that's very close to Putin from St. Petersburg. Yeah. yeah, and remember, Russia's a system where it's not the position that matters as much as the person and their patronage network and the clan that they represent, right? People, uh, People's officials' position is not the determinant necessarily of, of their access and power. So uh, there's others who very much were on the mobilization side, meaning they believed in ideological mobilization, they wanted to have volunteer battalions, they wanted to expand the effort to society, and Wagner was like one of the expressions of, of <coughs> the expansion of Wagner, the use of convicts, was the sort of thing that they pushed. And I think eventually it led to a contest and a competition, and it was done in partnership with MOD, but it was not sustainable as a partnership. Right? The compromise of how Wagner would be run by the MOD was not sustainable. And when the MOD went out and said, no, Wagner's going to have to sign contracts with us, you're going to have to be subordinate, Prigozhin was clearly going to lose out. And that was one of, that was one of the, the crisis points that led to this fight. And guys, sorry about the noise you're hearing. We're on a train. Some of the issues with doing field podcasting, but hopefully you can still hear us okay. Rob, what is your view on where things are headed now with regards to PMCs and, frankly, even Wagner's overseas role right there, Africa, Libya, Syria operations? What's going to happen to that now? Obviously, a little bit of speculation here. Yes, there's been reporting about um, the Russian government trying to, um, allegedly in Syria and elsewhere, potentially pushing back on, on Wagner and trying to kind of take over, kind of control their operations. <clears throat> Not fully clear what's going to happen. You know, I think one, one of the, the issues when this, uh, this mutiny or coup when it be, be happens was that it was, it's not easy for the Russian government to extricate itself from Wagner because Wagner is not a private organization; it's a public organization. It works for the Russian government and works on, on behalf of the Russian government's interests. And so, the, you know, the initial um, terms, of the agreement that uh, Peskov announced that you know allegedly Prigozhin had agreed to with Lukashenko, it, that didn't really make sense. So it left a lot, of, a lot of unresolved kind of issues here. And the idea that Wagner would be able to operate in Belarus, but would still be able to operate um, across Africa still playing this role that kind of furthers Russian government interests and also, uh, you know, operates with the Russian government support, that, that, that dynamic didn't make much sense. And so clearly that, that's, that's going to have to adjust at some point. Um, and I think, you know, potentially what, what I think the Russian government would like is they'd like to maybe push out Prigozhin and put something else, maybe another oligarch in charge, so you wouldn't have to kind of completely disrupt the, the, the organization. Um, but, you know, the, the, the center of gravity of Wagner is really the is assault attachment commander. So these kind of guys like Radabor, uh, Lotus, Zombies, other kind of uh, figures who've become better known in this war. But a lot of those guys have been around since, you know, 2014, were fighting in Donbass. They're, they're probably loyal to Prigozhin. Yeah, so I mean, that's, a, that's one of the questions, right? And one of the questions also is with the utkin Prigozhin dynamic, right? Where, you know, Utkin is really the founder mm-hmm. of Wagner, the guy who named it. Exactly. And so, I mean, so, so Wagner is his call sign. And so then it became basically the, the name of the organization, of, the, of the, the group based on that. So, you know, Utkin is the kind of key player. He's almost never seen. I, haven't, I don't think there's been a recent photo of him in, you know, maybe five or six years. Um, and obviously that contrasts very, very closely with uh, Prigozhin, who's had has extremely public role with us war, which you know, created a lot of the problems. So a big question going forward is, you know, will, will these Ut- the Utkin, right aboard these other kind of figures with a lot of combat experience and more combat experience than the Russian military, um, will they go along with uh, um, the organization if Prigozhin is pushed out? And if, if they won't go along with it, it won't be Wagner anymore. It'll be something different because they're the kind of, you know, connective tissue that, that keeps the kind of culture of what Wagner is. So a lot of questions there. You know, there are other, other PMCs that Russia's created during this war. Redut put a, a key role in the beginning of the war. Not clear how, how necessarily effective they were. Gazprom has, has their own PMC. There's some other kind of private group as well with, with kind of some amorphous ties. It seems that, you know, most of them are associated in some way or another with a, a Russian uh, uh, company or with a you know, kind of oligarch. So it's not fully clear, but you know, I think clearly Putin would probably prefer a more loyal figure being put in charge of this organization. Um, there's other questions also. You know, can you 
it, because Wagner relies so much on Russian government support, um, you know, the operations in Libya, elsewhere, can it, can Wagner operate without Russian government support? If it can't, you know, is, is there an issue that the Russian government and its inefficiencies and bureaucratic problems we've seen with the Russian military, would that, if they take over the Russian, uh, they take over Wagner, would that make Wagner less effective organization? So there's some kind of questions about how that to adapt to this. Clearly, the, you know, the, 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 the most pressing kind of media concern is A, the kind of threat that's posed to Putin, and also the war in Ukraine. And so that's what matters most. And I think everything else is kind of a bit of a sideshow. So, you know, we'll probably see in the you know, coming weeks exactly how this kind of dynamic plays out. Um, but, you know, clearly the MOD is still pushing forward with making PMCs sign contracts with the MOD. I assume that will continue even more after this event. And, you know, I think it's pretty clear the MOD is going to be the kind of main organization playing the role in this war. And it's not going to be the same kind of maybe unity of command problem we saw earlier in this war, and especially in Bakhmut, where you had these, you know, kind of ridiculous videos from Prigozhin, you know, yelling at Shoigu and Gerasimov while this kind of fight is going on. So the main question, Mike, that a lot of people probably have right now is, why is Prigozhin free? Why is he walking around St. Petersburg? Why is he not in exile? Why is he not dead? You know, my view on this is that through some of those intermediaries that you, you've mentioned that have been supporting him and who are still probably on his side, he is probably begging Putin for forgiveness, basically saying, look, you know, maybe I drank a little too much, got overly excited, you know, has spent uh, last year at the front, wasn't thinking clearly, this was never meant against you, my bad, can, can we all be friends? Is that your take as well? Yeah, I mean, who hasn't had a late-nighter and then uh, end up driving with several thousand men to the capital in an attempted mutiny slash coup? It's happened to the best of us, really. So uh, my sense of it is that, first, Prigozhin, he's probably begging for forgiveness, but the problem is that, that Putin doesn't forgive betrayal. He forgives incompetence easily, but he does not forgive betrayal. But, but he may be convinced that this was not a betrayal, that the, the guy kind of got overly excited, he's still loyal, He's done a lot of work for Putin in the past. You know, we don't know, obviously, but that's the pitch. I'm sure he can be sold that this is less than what it seems. Things got a hand in the contest with Shoigu. But here's the problem. Here's the problem for that story. Putin came out and made a televised address, okay, during Prigozhin's mutiny when Prigozhin had seized Rostov HQ. And typically in the Russian system the last 20-plus years, when Putin had done that, the matter had been decided. People understood how things were going to go. He had arbitrated and issued a public decision. But Prigozhin did not stop and did not turn his men around when Prigozhin made that televised statement. And that was something very different. When Putin made the statement. Yeah, sorry, when Putin made that statement. Uh, and, and so that was a clear mark of rebellion, right? That he did, uh, not only did he disobey him, but he continued to march on the capital. I think uh, Putin agreed this from a relative position of weakness because he himself was uncertain as to what the coup was, who was involved, and what was going to happen when Prigozhin's men got to the capital. But this typically happens, from my point of view, with Putin. And folks usually look at it as like, look, he was challenged, and he didn't escalate, he backed down. Eh, that's not really, that's not as much the case. Putin will often make a deal simply to buy time. And the purpose of that deal is not to resolve the matter, but to get him out of a relatively disadvantageous position. And then he's going to go back and and, uh, and deal with Prigozhin. So I'm not sure how this all ends for him down the line. I think that they're going to try to slowly take apart Wagner infrastructure in Africa and the Middle East. They don't have an easy replacement for Wagner. Um, they obviously needed an answer to the thousands of troops that Wagner had, okay? And it would have been highly disruptive to the war effort to have that fight right now in the middle of the Ukraine offensive as well. You have to understand that the offensive had not been going badly from the Russian perspective. But what would have been a disaster is if Wagner had occupied the entire military HQ and logistical support pipeline in the middle of all of this, right? Um, that it would have made a whole mess. So Putin, so in some respects, Prigozhin had Putin in an unenviable position, you know, for for a brief period of time, which is where the deal came from. But I don't think that the deal solves uh, solves this matter at all. And and like I said, it's clear again from the fact Prigozhin's not in jail. He's been allowed to fire sale his assets. He's flying back and forth. He's given money. That he has significant cover in the Kremlin. There's no other way to interpret this, right? <laughs> I think that's one of the, one of the many points of evidence pointing to it. Or, or at least people are convincing Putin that Prigozhin is still needed, maybe in Ukraine, maybe elsewhere, and or or that he's got enough power with both Wagner troops and maybe others across Russia that taking him out or imprisoning him would be 
a major inconvenience to say the least. Yeah, or that it would be a major ruling against whoever was backing him as well. You know, in the Russian system, you rarely attack, uh, like, you ever, it's all the first face who's in charge. You normally attack whoever is second or third down the line below them and who represents them. So, I, uh, honestly, I think a lot of this is yet to shake out. So I was very skeptical of the early narratives of who won, who lost, or that, you know, 12 hours in, some folks wrote that this is, you know, Russian Civil War has taken off and it's 1917. And it, it's again a cautionary note. Uh, I think my answer was disappointing early on in all this, which was I didn't know what was going on. You know, the short answer is we don't know what's going on, and the longer answer is we have, we, we still don't know what's going to happen. That's the that's the longer answer. Look, looking at all this, and in, in some cases this is kind of terra incognita in terms of we haven't seen something like this in the Russian system over the last 20 plus years. All right, we're pulling into Kiev to be continued. Thank you, guys. Thank you.